Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zorro.com. Zorro.com is where you'll find everything you need for businesses of any size in almost any industry. They have tools, equipment, and supplies for everything you need. Whether you need stuff for industries like electrical, plumbing, contracting, manufacturing, or more, Zorro's got it from brands you know and trust. And Zorro.com offers amazing customer service from real people based in the U.S. Visit Zorro.com slash watch. That's Z-O-R-O dot com slash watch, lowercase letters, to sign up for Zmail and get 15% off your first order. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And I am still in Philadelphia, and I'm, I promise I'm not going to monologue the entire show. I'm not going full coward. Today on the pod, I have Donnie Kwok joining me to talk a little bit about Top Boy Season 3, which is on Netflix. It dropped on Friday. It's this incredible UK crime drama, and we talked a little bit about Drake's involvement in the show and why we love it so much. And then later in the show, Jason Gallagher making, what, is like his fifth appearance of the summer. My Real America correspondent, he's coming to talk to me a little bit about Ken Burns' country music documentary and also a little bit of Righteous Gemstones. I am aware Righteous Gemstones is advertising on the show today. If you're going to be in the, big, in the pocket of big something, it's good to be in the pocket of big gemstones. But we really just want to talk about misbehaving. I hope everybody watched Sunday's episode. But before we get into all that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the peacock. I have to come up with... Maybe gotta, I got to get together with Greenwald and put our heads together. We have Disney Plus. There's a couple of ways you could go with the peacock. I think I'm going to go with the bird. Kaya, do you like the sound of that? Yeah, I just giggled to myself. Good. So, See, yeah, Nick, good. The nickname for the peacock is officially the bird. Uh, the peacock is NBC Universal's streaming service. So that was announced the other day. And I, I think there's some really interesting stuff to talk about. Now, obviously, we're in the pocket of Big Gemstones. The Watch Podcast is also in the pocket of Big S-Mail. So, you know, we saw that the, it was announced that Sam is going to be uh, not rebooting Battlestar Galactica, but doing another story from the wider Battlestar Galactica universe. Battlestar Galactica was one of the best shows of the decade or the century, the, the, according to me. It was just an absolute masterpiece of television. I can't wait to see what Sam's take on it is. The Peacock is also launching with uh, a new Mike Schur show, a reboot of Punky Brewster, a reboot of Saved by the Bell. But the original content here is not actually what I want to focus on because we can speculate all day about like, oh, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. The Peacock actually seems like the most significant Netflix competitor to me in some ways because... Of I can't believe I'm calling it the peacock. The bird. The bird seems like it could be the biggest Netflix competitor to me in some ways. What does Netflix have? It has library. It has the turn it on when you get home, turn it off when you get to sleep feel. It, it is new television. It is the way that we used to engage with television where you could just have the office playing. You could just have friends playing. You could have Orange is the New Black on or whatever you want on in the background. Shit's Creek. It, there's so much stuff that you could just kind of move through it's got hours all these other services that are launching now they have to build up their libraries and they have to teach the audience what's in there so disney plus is going to have a lot of stuff for families a lot of stuff for kids it's going to have star wars it'll have marvel but it doesn't necessarily off jump have that oh i'm just going to have this on i'm just going to go check out what's on disney plus and i think in some ways that's what the bird has because it's going to have, apparently, 
15,000 hours of content on launch day, including the archive, the entire archive of Saturday Night Live, as well as The Office, as well as Friday Night Lights, as well as Parks and Recreation. You know, obviously Seinfeld is going to Netflix, but The Bird will have Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Like, basically any NBC stuff that you're watching, with the exception of Seinfeld, a lot of the NBC stuff that you're watching on Hulu, I think, is going to be on the Peacock. And once you can get past actually paying for something called the Peacock, I think a lot of people are going to sign up for this. Now, I have a lot of questions. One is, as we say every time we do Streaming Wars conversations, is how many of these things are people going to actually pay for? Um, There's going to be an ad-supported version of the Peacock. I think there will be ad-supported versions of several of these services. HBO Max continues to build up its original programming announcements. But I, I, I do wonder whether or not the Peacock will actually function as a hybrid streaming service cable network because they're going to start out. This is launching after the 2020 Olympics. So it's going to have a huge platform with which to announce itself. And then it sounds like they're going to make a real commitment to sports and news. Now, I don't know the particulars of whether or not, say, this streaming service will swallow NBCSports.com and will start showing Premier League games, for instance, or, or any of the other stuff that NBC has, like golf or NASCAR. I don't know whether or not NBC News or MSNBC will necessarily be folded within this streaming service if you want to watch that stuff online. But it it strikes me that that will be something that they're looking at. And they've talked a lot about news and sports as, as core functions of this. And that's going to be something that is a little bit of a differentiator in the streaming wars for this service. So you have these beloved, huge volume sitcoms like Parks and Rec, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like The Office. Then you've got live programming to some extent, news and sports. And then you have to imagine that the the stuff that we've heard about, Battlestar and everything else, in terms of original programming, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I'm not necessarily saying like, I'm going to get a peacock tattoo. But as, as far as like all the rollouts and announcements that we've seen with Apple kind of being very much, you know, despite the price point being $4.99, we still don't really know what we're getting. We've we've got a couple of trailers, but we don't really have a full idea of like what the experience of that service is going to be. I feel like I can kind of understand what the the Peacock is already. And I kind of wonder whether or not this will be one of them that in five years will still be standing. Because I don't think everybody can be. Maybe I'm wrong, but especially like Lucas Shaw said a couple weeks ago when he joined the watch on on. Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, he was talking about it. It's like, what's going to happen if there, if a recession hits? People are not going to be signing up for eight services. And what, who's going to be left standing when all that's over? So that's something really interesting to keep in mind as we go forward. Uh, we'll be having more conversations about some of these streaming services going forward. But that was the thing that really jumped out to me about the Peacock. So without further ado, let's wrap that up. And let's get into my conversation with Donnie Kwok about one of, honestly, again, just like earlier this week when I was talking about Unbelievable and Undone, one of my favorite shows of the year. Again, top 10s get filled out by September. This is a conversation I have with Donnie about Top Boy Season 3 on Netflix. So Donnie is here to join me today. It's a big show today. Donnie's going to come on and we're going to talk a little bit about Top Boy. I'm also talking a little bit about um, the new NBC Universal streaming service, Peacock. And then Gallagher is going to come on in a little bit, Jason Gallagher. And we are going to talk a little bit about Ken Burns' country music and a little bit of Righteous Gemstones. But Donnie, I wanted to get right into Top Boy with you. So 
for people who don't know what it is, why don't you talk a little bit about this show's, it's a Netflix show and it, it's got an interesting trajectory, an interesting development trajectory. Yeah, I'm actually not the biggest Top Boy expert, but I've kind of quickly come up to speed watching this new season that just premiered last week. So essentially, it's a BBC drug crime drama. Or originally, it was. And the first two seasons aired, I believe, five or six years ago. Uh, it's only a total, I think, of eight episodes, and those are all available on Netflix. It was canceled. And then uh, the legend has it that the artist Drake... Uh, was a fan of the show and actually shouted it out on Instagram. And then one of the show's stars, who a grime rapper called Kano, who plays Sully on the show, responded to that Instagram post. And then, you know, one thing followed another. Drake bought the rights. And then years later, five or six years later now, Drake uh, is the executive producer of this third season of Top Boy, which is 10 episodes. And like I said, it premiered last Friday. And pretty much everybody I know has been totally absorbed by it. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like it came. I know Micah wrote about it on the Ringer a couple of days ago. It came out like on uh, last Friday, I believe. Right. And Donnie's right. This is basically a show it premiered in 2011. It was directed by Jan Damage, who's gone on to do White Boy Rick and is kind of a really big up and coming filmmaker right now. And it was written by Ronan Bennett, who's a Northern Irish screenwriter and novelist who had been uh, living and working in London and had been kind of inspired by what he was seeing around him. But the show feels so evocative and specific to a place and a time in London. And it's got one of these sort of miracle runs where it go, comes on in 11 for series one, to use the British way of talking <laughs> about seasons. Series one, series two, 2013 kind of goes off the map. They cancel it on channel four in England. And like Donnie's saying, like somewhere along the line, Drake just decided this show needed to continue to exist. And I, for one, bow down to our new Medici's. If Drake wants to bring, <laughs> if wants to bring Top Boy back, uh, that's great. Like, like Donnie, I am like what I would call a, I was aware of it and had watched a little bit of it on YouTube, but was not like a big, I couldn't, I couldn't run through every plot line and every character. Yeah, exactly. I was the same. I'm vaguely aware of the title, the fact that it was a cult classic. Drake had even mentioned the show in his lyrics. And, you know, as Drake has become more of a sort of UK file in the last few years, it's like it felt like the momentum was right for the series to come back. Yeah. And also, it, it this, this so the series is now back and it's a 10 episode run. Um, and it, this is just a fantastic show. Now, it, there is kind of like a, a sort of international crime show syndicate right now, a lot of which is on Netflix. You've got Gamora, Narcos. Um, obviously Top Boy, there's it, Money Heist. It seems like they're, every country has its own kind of like crime syndicate show. Uh, but Top Boy, uh, you know, has been often compared to The Wire, but I, I feel like it has almost um, a more cinematic feel when it comes to the filmmaking. Uh, you know, it's got this score from Brian Eno and the performances are a lot more naturalistic, I feel like, than they are on The Wire. Like The Wire, there was still a lot of like, everything was kind of, running in a lane so that it was, and it was all going towards the same toll booth that paid <laughs> off at the end of every episode. And that like, there was a certain essayistic quality to the wire. Often it's described as this, the, you know, television show as a novel, but I always felt like the wire made it, had a thesis statement at the top and then had a conclusion at the bottom of every episode. And that there was like a thematic coherence to it. Whereas top boy is essentially in a lot of ways, like it's just like a hyper violent soap opera in a lot of ways. I was about to say, it's like a soap opera. And, and like you were saying, you know, 
it hews pretty closely to the conventions of these types of drug crime dramas where you have kind of an upstart versus a veteran and their cronies and then different, you know, uh, hustling stuff and revenge and all of that. But I mean, I think the milieu really to me is what is such a draw. We were talking, joking earlier about the slang, but it's one of those, the specificity of it is the universal. I mean, I know that's become a cliche now, but there's so much kind of intricate knowledge of London and, and the way they speak. You know, there's part of it takes place in Jamaica. And of course you see the, the big West Indian influence in London. Uh, all of it feels so fresh when you're watching it that uh, despite it being a little cliche as far as how the narrative is going, uh, it's really, really compelling. And I've been speaking fake <laughs> London slang now for, as you know, <laughs> since I started watching it. I mean, it. let's not be, let's not be funny. Like it, it that is definitely like 50% of, of like the reason to check it out is just like so that you can then adopt like a hundred new sayings. Like even <laughs> if it's just like just saying chat instead of talk. Uh, yeah. The language of it is just so incredible. And especially as an American viewer, um, even if you're not familiar with like uh, UK grime and UK hip hop slang, you, it's like this really weird feeling where you like understand it if you don't know it. Even if you don't know the language entirely and all the vocabulary and all the um, and all the little sayings, like you still understand what everybody's saying, and you can always just watch it with with subtitles on on Netflix. You, you don't watch it with like subtitles a, on? No, I tried not to, and then I was like, I'm not. It's like impossible. I have to do that with pretty much any English, like any UK show. Like I had to do that with Dairy Girls. I have to do that with like almost anything. Like now, I, my brain has just become like completely mush from you, from years of the internet. You know what's funny with watching it with subtitles on this show, this particular show, is they suck their teeth a lot. Characters do. And so there's so many times you see bracketed like TSK. And then also yeah. exhale, exhale sharply. There's a lot of like little <laughs> yeah. short sighs yeah. as, you know, like one problem builds on top of another. Did you? Are you familiar too though? Because I'm not even like that well versed in the grime scene. So I knew who Kano was. But, you know, most of the primary characters here are coming from the grime world. And they're really, yeah, really Dave, good. Dave is in it, right? Dave's kind of, he, you know, he plays Modi, who's in jail, uh, kind of uh -huh. a smaller role. But even uh, Duchesne, uh, he comes from the So Solid crew, apparently, which I found out through research. I, I had no idea. He's a tremendous actor. Uh, yeah. Ashley Matthew Matthews, I believe, is his name. I think it's Ashley Waters, it? right? Oh, Wa Waters? Walters? Sorry. Should I look that up? Your deep <laughs> knowledge of So Solid crew is not a requirement of being on the watch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's kind of like the emotional anchor of the show, I would say. And uh, I mean, I think Michael wrote in his piece that you mentioned, his face conveys a wide array of emotions with very minimal effort, it seems. Yeah, it's also, I, I think, worth noting that this is obviously a show that started and captured a certain youth culture in 2011. And the 2019 version of the show reckons with the aging of these characters. So these characters, a lot of which have been on the show throughout the three seasons, are kind of staring down middle age. And it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a fascinating, like Duchesne and Sully specifically are, they both talk about like in, in the early parts of season three, about being 35, 36 and not having girlfriends and not having families and not having the kind of lives that they had been dreaming of when they were kids. Relatable and just are content. Sort of at, <laughs> yeah, and I know, seriously, it is. It's, a, it's really good midlife crisis content. And I, I thought it was really like, that's, it's actually quite touching to watch these guys. I mean, 
The other thing that's really huge is, uh, and, you know, as I've talked with Greenwald over the course of the year, watching him make Briar Patch, and also when I got to go down to New Mexico, I saw this firsthand. But I don't know whether the rules are different, like the tax laws are different, the permits are different, or whatever in England when they're making television. But the the locations that they get into mm. on this show are unlike anything you really see on American television. I mean, The Wire had some some really like, obviously like true to life, like they were in the mix and stuff, but y- you almost felt like they were returning to the same block over and over again because they had permits for that street or whatever. Like this show seems to just go wherever the camera and the characters want to go. And it, 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 it still re- maintains a, a real, almost like a verite Michael Mann feel, kind of has a feel of like um, some of his later stuff like Miami Vice, but it, right. it is so wild how they'll, they'll just be in a Turkish cafe. They'll just be in yeah. a Dalston the market. Calf. They'll just, yeah, they'll just be in a new condo complex that's being built by cocaine dealers. It's just amazing how they get in these places to say nothing of the Jamaica stuff in the first episode. Yeah. And also, as you mentioned, with D- Duchesne and Sully and all of the characters that returned from the first two seasons, reckoning with where they are in 2019. It's also sort of Britain in 2019 too, because there's like the Im- there's like an immigration subplot. You know, Brexit is kind of in the air. There's gentrification. Uh, London in 2019 has changed a lot, I guess, over the last decade, as many major cities have. And I think it's uh, yeah. it's kind of an interesting portrait of that as well. No, I, I mean, like my cousin actually lives over in Dalston. And I, I've just spent a little bit of time there. I'm obviously nothing like, uh, I haven't had experiences like the ones we see in the show, but you can feel it's like New York or like any big city that's like just constantly in flux. And and part of the the fat, like the kind of the energy that comes out of that city is the collision of cultures and is the collision of economic circumstances. And it also produces a ton of different anxieties, which you can see on the show. The thing that's, you know, I think people have compared it to The Wire for obvious reasons because it's this chronicle of the drug underworld and right. the, the people who are kind of trying to to make their way through it. But I think that the thing that I, I, I noticed that was, I, I, I don't even know, I, I feel like this is pretty specific to this show. I thought it was really well rendered on Top Boy is the constant kind of having to steal from Peter to pay Paul nature mm. of being in the criminal underworld. Like, Duchesne, Sully, like all these guys are uh, basically constantly living hand to mouth, even if even if not like actually financially, they're like, they have to like pay off a Jamaican supplier to make sure that the Turkish dealers don't come after them. Like there's so much anxiety and dread in the show. They really render that well. Yeah, there's not a lot of glamour in, in this drug trade. I mean, you don't ever see them. Usually with some of these drug crime dramas, there's always a montage or a scene of them reaping the rewards of their hard work and, the, and you know, like, and, and selling. And and here it's it's just a constant sense of anxiety permeates every episode. It's actually quite violent too, you know, more violent than I had expected. Dude, knife crime. How about that? <laughs> and gun Get, crime. But hard pass on knives, man. Like, what, let's like, that looks terrible. Like, there's a lot of knife crime uh, in the early in season three. So, yeah, it, it's pretty violent. It's a, just a fair warning. But I think that people who've been listening to the show and, and checking out like crime movies and crime television that we've recommended in the past, like, I, I really highly recommend Top Boy. It's like yet another example of why September's just been such an incredible month. Do you have a tendency, like, do you think that you're a little bit more curious at this point? about international crime shows necessarily than domestic ones? Um, 
I can't say that. I mean, I, I think I kind of lean towards these shows in general anyway. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't, the, the, the other shows you mentioned, I haven't seen, but, you know, I find myself after watching Top Boy more interested in grime music though, or, or like grime artists yeah. or rap yeah, coming yeah. out of UK. I mean, it's already kind of trending. I was a fan of Dave. Actually, I knew of Dave before this show. So um, it's cer- certainly- Because Dave is the Tiago Silva guy, right? He's in that video. I don't think it's his song. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he did Stretham, though. Stretham? Stretham. Yeah. yeah. Stretham. Yeah, Stretham. <laughs> I don't want to slip into the patois. <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> I was uh, tweeting this earlier that Drake's had a hell of a summer, though, because he's executive produced two critically acclaimed television shows, Euphoria and now Top Boy. So, I mean, shout out to Drake for being like a TV mogul now. Yeah, that's the thing that's sort of strange. So he's done, and, and Maverick Carter and Spring Hill are also involved in the revival of Top Boy. But Drake is... As is proving himself to be, you knew he could very easily go out and try and find his, you know, whether it, like he could try and executive produce like an animated movie, like a Secret Life of Pets type thing, but with like <laughs> rappers' voices. Like there are way easier paychecks in the world than making Euphoria and Top Boy. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that he doesn't have his own production outfit, or does he? He doesn't. Uh, he's. Just I think. Exec- I think that they. I think that he. He basically has Drake Industries, and they're getting into production now, but. This is a pretty savvy move for him because, as you you pointed out to me before we started potting, but this has been, at least according to obviously Netflix's internal and never shared metrics, a huge hit in the UK since its right. uh, revival. And uh, Euphoria obviously really captured a post-Thrones bounce and was kind of like the talk of the midsummer after Thrones went off the air on HBO. So like he has kind of had this incredible four or five month run with shows on the air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, unprecedented actually, I think for a rapper to have, you know, that kind of influence in in terms of making programming. So. The interesting thing is also the, the origins of this story being written by this guy, Ronan Bennett. I can tweet this out, but really interesting character. This guy who wrote and created this, the, the show who's just basically like, you know, an, an, a Northern Irish novelist and screenwriter who uh, did the first two series and then lost his wife, actually, and actually has put, sprinkled in some stuff about his relationship to his late wife into series three. And it's a, a there's a really, really great article he wrote for The Guardian about working on series three and some of the stuff that came from his personal life that wound up in the show itself. But really, like open-eared, empathetic piece of writing from this guy. I think it's really well executed. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's essentially the David Simon of of Top Boy, right? I mean, do you think... Yeah. He basically, obviously wasn't living in an estate and running drug deals, but somehow, you know, he's written something that I feel is very authentic, obviously not having experienced it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like for the most part, he did a lot did a lot of the kind of journalism work that that David Simon did. He doesn't have necessarily that background, but did a lot of that kind of research. And then Ronaldo Marcus Green, who made Monsters and Men, directed the first three episodes of series three. And I think he just brings such like an incredible eye to the show. I mean, like even there's a the opening scene of episode two is just this. Uh, a drone flying through an apartment complex, uh, <laughs> yeah. bringing drugs and a phone to one of the characters. And right. the way that they shoot it and the Brian Eno score, I mean, Brian Eno did the score uh, that's playing over it is just so awesome. 
Yeah, that's another thing that you see a lot with the subtitles. Whenever the score comes in, it says tense ambient music plays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I was listening to some of like the soundtracks that are on Spotify and they're they're pretty amazing. But um so Quack, are you watching anything else right now besides Top Boy? Uh I'm pretty monogamous when it comes to television. I know that's weird for someone that works at the ringer, but uh No, that's thank- really good. That's really good. I've been having this crisis right now because I feel like I have to I can't decide like how how Catholic I need to be about finishing what I started with shows and making sure that I've like gotten to the end of all of them. But so like when you start Top Boy, you just finish Top Boy and then it's time for something else. Well, actually, that's a lie because I'm watching Succession as well. But yeah, for okay. Top I'm also it's hard for me to binge, you know, like I'm kind of old school in that way too. Maybe like I'll watch one or two episodes, but my attention starts to kind of wane in the third hour. Mm-hmm. So I've been kind of consuming it in twice a night two episodes a night but I'm up to episode seven I believe of Top Boy I think okay yeah and but it's still been you know super compelling you know I was starting to feel like there were too many plot lines but now uh, as I probably should have expected they're starting to converge yeah you could kind of see I mean like if you if you're familiar with Wire this is the one thing I would also say that David Simon's a huge influence is you can see the we were like, why am I watching this plot line about these two kids starting a burger stand? And like, oh, okay. I should have seen it coming, so, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Donnie and I obviously highly recommend Top Boy. Maybe we'll get back together in a couple of weeks once we're both finished the season and we'll talk about the the sort of more spoilery discussion of Duchesne and Sully's exploits. In it. Thanks, thanks for joining me, Donnie. I'll be back <laughs> with you, Jason Chris. Gallagher in just a minute. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by M&M's Hazelnut. M&M's Hazelnut Spread is going where no hazelnut spread has gone before, right inside M&M's Chocolate Candies. If you love M&M's Chocolate Candies and you love Hazelnut Spread, just wait until you try these together for the first time. They've added delicious hazelnut spread to the center of smooth M&M's milk chocolate and crunchy candy shell. Enjoy them on their own or use them to dress up your other favorite treats. Just imagine them baked into cookies or sprinkled on top of go-to ice cream flavor. Kai, guess what I do with my M&M's hazelnut spread chocolate candies? What? I throw them in the popcorn. Wow, innovative. I get a a little popcorn, I get a little salty going fire up top boy fire up whatever and then bang we just let it rock with the popcorn and the hazelnut m&ms it's so good go hazelnutty and try the new m&ms hazelnut spread chocolate candies today today's episode of the watch is brought to you by the righteous gemstones what happens when the creators of eastbound and down and vice principals turn their attention to the world of televangelist preachers find out in the righteous gemstones airing sundays on hbo the new comedy Danny McBride centers on the Gemstones, a celebrity televangelist family behind a popular megachurch that also happens to be a major money-making enterprise. McBride stars as Jesse Gemstone, the eldest of three Gemstone children who sees himself as a maverick in the ministry game. Joining Jesse are his sister, Judy, played by Edie Patterson, and brother Kelvin, a suitor hipster who always finds a way to get under his brother's skin, played by Adam Devine. John Goodman stars as the family's patriarch, Eli, who finds himself at a point of crisis as he mourns the loss of his wife. He also questions whether the Gemstones are still serving a higher power as they aggressively expand their empire. The Righteous Gemstones is a hilarious and irreverent look at a high, living, holy rollers whose world of mansions, jets, greed, and corruption belies their virtuous, godly mission. The half-hour comedy airs Sundays at 10 p.m. only on HBO. 
I'm now joined by Jason Gallagher. Jason joins me intermittently to talk about th- one of three subjects. <laughs> Theme parks. Yeah. Religion. Country music. Yep. Today we're going to talk about two of those things and not theme parks. What's up, Jason? What's up, man? Thanks for having me. I'm like actually honored I have this corner on this podcast. I'm just telling you. Well, yeah, you're my Real America correspondent. (laughs) I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Ken Burns' country music, which, uh, so, you know, like I'm home with my mom right now. I'm visiting Philadelphia and, uh, you know, you got to make compromises. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. when When you're chilling with mom, you got, you just can't watch succession four times in a row and <laughs> you can't watch a lot of golf instructional YouTube. You got to find stuff that you're both into. And my mom is the target audience for Ken Burns's country music. And uh, I think I am too. I mean, I really, really, really adore his work. I will say in full disclosure, I don't always finish them. Sure. I don't always see every minute of every episode of these incredible works of scholarship and public education. But uh, I just think that you could say that he he sort of does the same tricks over and over again and yeah. the kind of somber music and the Peter Coyote voiceover and the zooming in or the pans across photographs or whatever. Yeah. But God damn it, if he doesn't teach you and inspire you when he's doing these shows and, and country music, which is a subject I would describe myself as like medium high interested in. I'm very interested in American music, but country is not my favorite. Sure. Has been absolutely captivating over the last couple of nights. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. That medium high is is higher than I would have thought. Yeah, every time well, every I mean, time I, I listen to I I, a country song, you're like, is that high women? <laughs> <laughs> I I'm a typical annoying asshole East Coast city guy in that like my country music tastes are predictably alternative. Yeah. You know what I mean? For sure. And so when I was growing up, and like Alabama would win every country music award or whatever. And Vince Gill and Garth Brooks were huge. Yeah, I was just like, this stuff is completely whack to me. And then as I got older and I started listening to Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Outlaw Country right. and some of the more, you know, like some of the 60s stuff. And then really got into like Graham Parsons and some of the more cosmic country stuff. Like that's not necessarily straight up Nashville stuff, but it, it, I obviously really like it. And then I really like No Depression, yeah. country rock bands from the 90s and, and 2000s, like Wilco, obviously, and, and Uncle Tupelo. And, um, yeah, I, I, I You have a much more traditional relationship to it, though. For sure. And I, I actually think it's like really telling that Ken Burns decided to kind of stop in the 90s, um, which is probably, yeah, which is probably, you know, a testament to why a lot of, you know, people like our colleagues and and I, I don't want to like say you, but kind of you were probably you can say you can say well, me. You, it's probably why you were a little out on it because it it feels like such a the more mainstream country feels like such a departure from really what it was sort of all about. You know, there's obviously some really good artists like you know Miranda Lambert and people like that, um, but when Florida Georgia Line starts getting <laughs> involved, it's it's like well the opposite of what I'm watching on the Ken Burns documentary. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just loved, I've always loved country music as, as you said, I kind of grew up on it and the, the 90s stuff actually did hit home to me. I don't, I mean, I was a child, so it was whatever my parents were listening to. Um, But it, it, you know, this journey into this documentary was really interesting because I had, I don't, I've never, I've never 
for one second of my life been like, I wonder what the history of country music's all about. <laughs> yeah. Even though it was such yeah. an impactful thing on my life. And uh, I texted you that I just, I genuinely found it pretty moving. Like hearing some of the songs that even were like a huge part of my childhood, um, you know, Will the Circle Be Unbroken was like a song that yeah, played- Yeah, some of the Carter family e stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, it was like all over- church and the radio like still like we listen to it like a lot and and it's just kind of crazy i never thought about like just how <laughs> how like part of the earth it seemed it was so fascinating to hear some of these songs that were just like and they came from the british isles and you're like wait so who where did it come like who wrote it though you know it's just like they talk about yeah. it like it's a plant they found you know what i mean no, I mean, these were folk songs brought over from Scotland and England and Ireland, and then they went through the rural kind of... They rolled through the mud, essentially. Yeah. And when they came out on the other side, there was all these... There was blues, and there was jazz, and there was country music, and there were these these American musics uh, in the 19th century and into the 20th century. I mean, obviously, Ken Burns starts with, you know, the introduction of the fiddle to America. Yeah. Um, and so it's a really painstaking... Uh, genealogy lesson essentially about like how these different forms of music emerged out of these different parts of the regions of America and why and how and and the impact of the the intermingling of slavery and and also rural white uh blue like not blue collar because I don't even know if collars were really, but yeah. like rural white farmers back then in the 18th century and 19th century and the emergence of these forms over the, the course of hundreds of years. And then it really sort of starts to pick up steam in the early episodes when it talks about the emergence of uh, radio yeah. and the introduction of technology, not only recording music, but broadcasting it. That's where it really jumps up a notch, right? Sure. And in the first few episodes, like the relationship of the music to radio and the way that radio made these people into stars. Yeah. You might as well be watching it taking place in the 50s or the 60s or the 80s or even today and substitute the internet in for the radio. Yeah, totally. And seeing some of the people who sort of emerged um, out of that. And, I, the, you know, I had sort of a moment where um, one of the guys, I think it was Bob Wills, and they were just talking about... Yeah, how, the Texas swing guy. Yeah, yeah, and they talked about how he would just sort of adapt to whatever was coming, you know? Same with... Um, um, Gene Autry, they would just sort of like, you know, if moving pictures and you can talk in, in the movies now and then they would, would hop on that. And I was like, man, these guys would have crushed it in the content space yeah. in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Autry would have been the Lord on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had that sort of moment. But um, the country or the, the radio stuff was fascinating. And I loved that they kept coming back to the guy who is like, and this guy was a pioneer in radio and he wanted to sell uh, goat testosterone for men who had like issues with like arousal. Who had the devil in their underpants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like they yeah, kept yeah. cutting back. And I'm like, this guy is really like a huge pivotal person in country music and sharing it to the rest of the world or, you know, the United States or whatever. And it was like, well, he just really wanted you, to sell the goat stuff. You learn about like the radio stations were uh, basically they were content arms of huge corporations yeah. like Sears and Roebuck or uh, insurance companies would start radio stations because they helped, They thought it would help them sell. They would help their door-to-door -door salesmen sell insurance policies. Right. And so they were like, sure, we'll start a radio station. And then out of that became the radio minted these stars. And then you've got like, 
you know, Andy and I have talked about the monoculture in terms of television, yeah. but it applies to music as well. And you've got people selling, I mean, what, 20 million copies of singles at certain points in, in the 20th century, right. you know, and uh, the, the sort of, so they've been showing two hours a night yeah. uh, for the last couple of nights. And then I think it comes back on Sunday to do the last four. Um, the last two nights, uh, my favorite parts were on, um, I believe on uh, Tuesday night, they did Hank Williams. Uh-huh. And on Wednesday night, they covered uh, Ray Charles and Patsy Cline um, and Johnny Cash. Uh, not their full lives, sure. but th- they were major parts of it. So Ray Charles's Modern Sounds and Country uh, and Western Music was, was featured. I was watching the Hank Williams se- section, uh-huh. which is pretty long and very detailed. And I was like, oh... They got to make a Hank Williams movie. Who should play? I was like, well, who should play Hank Williams? And I was sort of in my mind, like, who should direct it? Yeah. And then you keep watching it. And you're like, they don't need to make a Hank Williams movie. Like, this is the Hank Williams movie. It is so fucking gripping, yeah. the Hank Williams stuff. I, I don't think I knew a lot about his biography. I just knew the hits pretty much. Yeah. But you're just like, oh my God, this guy's life. And also, he was essentially Tiger Woods. Like, when he would show <laughs> up, 14,000 people would just show up with him. You yeah. Know? That's what's so like fascinating about so many of these guys. You know, I, I take notes when I know I'm coming on the watch. And one of the things I wrote in bold was just like how much some of these guys accomplished in their lives or like how much life yeah. they lived. Um, so I'm on, I've only gone through two episodes, <laughs> only four hours. Um, only four yeah. hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like so many of these guys, um, I think it was Jimmy Rogers and they were talking about his life and they were, and they were talking about how he used to, you know, play dice and then he skipped town and then joined the railroad and blah, blah, blah. And, and they went through like a, what felt like a full biography. And then they were like, and he was 13 years old. And I was like, holy shit. So nuts. (laughs) That was the same thing. So with, uh, the way that he does, I I really think that like it, it, it's at its, it's peak when it's mixing media and it's showing footage from, Hank Williams concerts and news broadcasts and television broadcasts of Hank Williams and then also mixing in still photography that gorgeous, incredibly um, moody and atmospheric life magazine style photography yeah. that was so prevalent at the time. And the Hank Williams stuff does that so well. The way it chronicles his last few months as his body deteriorated, as he was just ramping up the drug and alcohol abuse yeah. is just so gripping and uh, there's like shots where there's like this stuff during the Patsy Cline section. Another person who I did not know died at 30. Yeah. Um, they, you can see the texture of like the satin of her dress. I mean, it is, it is like amazing the way that you can like, the way you feel like you are in a room with Johnny mm-hmm. Cash and his first wife is just stunning. The way you feel like you, you know the texture of Patsy Cline's blouse or Hank Williams's jacket because of the way that they're photo they're filming the photography right. is so cool. That was so so much a part of why I I loved it and like mixing mixing those sort of visuals within you know these tracks these songs that that were just like deeply I mean they're meant to be emotional like country music I think you know one of the one of the interviews somebody was like it's about you know tragedy and murder and love and it's just like there's very you know surface level emotions um and so you're hearing these these lyrics and 
this like uh, you know tr- sad sounding music and then but then you're seeing like you said even some of the old old photographer photographs felt that way too um yeah it, it was i don't know i i did not expect i ha- i did not expect to get as into this as i as i did um no, i was no, I, I was I really mean, like, into I, it. it's and then you know ken burns usually in his films there emerges like one or two of the talking heads becomes kind yeah. of oh this is the guy like Shelby Foote obviously in the Civil War documentary and in uh, the Vietnam documentary I was deeply moved by the stuff that Tim O'Brien talks about in this doc in the first few episodes it's definitely Catch Secor yes. this guy from the Old Crow Medicine Show and Rhiannon Giddens who's a contemporary sort of hybrid I mean she's an amazing musician but she does a lot of stuff with folk she was in she was in the show country. Nashville <laughs> right. And then uh in the later episodes or the, the middle the middle episodes that I've seen Marty Stewart comes c- kind of comes to the forefront as just like this incredible uh uh talking head but the thing that's really amazing about this one is that some of the people who are talking for the documentary are like the kids of the people they're talking about right. or they I mean, Nashville does seem like a very tight-knit community. Country music seems like a very tight-knit community. And you've got this personal connection to uh, the engineers, the musicians, the the label people. There is like a familiarity with the entire um, industry of country music with everybody who's talking. And you don't really get that all the time. You know, it's, it's really amazing to see Carter and Cash children talking about their parents or grandparents or uncles or Hank Williams' son talking about Hank Williams. Yeah. And then furthermore, the impact that those iconic performers like Patsy Klein and Hank Williams had on people like Trisha Yearwood and Vince Gill. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And to to speak to sort of the legacy stuff, like it's it's sort of crazy. And maybe this is just like my skepticism towards life, but seeing how Pat not only like just super passionate these kids were about their parents and their music. Um, not saying that like we wouldn't be passionate about our parents, but they the way they just spoke about them with this like genuine, sincere appreciation for what their parents did and and the love of like the music that their parents created was really cool to see as well. Like I I would see like last name Carter and I'd be like, this woman really likes this. And you know, yeah. and then it, I had yeah. to Google it and it was like, yeah, this is good. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's yeah. Really cool. I mean, and, and you'll see pictures. He has photos where it's like Johnny Cash looking at June Carter yeah. while his first wife is in the room and his kids are in the room. <laughs> it was just like, oh, that happened. Yeah. Speaking of of country music, I before I let you go, I just wanted to talk a little bit about. So you came on last week and talked about gemstones. Right. I don't want to belabor how amazing it is, but obviously, like shows have like takes the leap episodes. Yeah. And I definitely think Interlude, which was Sunday's episode, it wasn't necessarily like the funniest episode. It wasn't necessarily like it didn't, it definitely made this show, it gave it a huge layer of, of I think, uh, sophistication that it didn't have before. Even though in the show, it's mostly about Walton Goggins feeding young yeah. Jesse Gemstone Coors Lights <laughs> at a birthday party. <laughs> The silver bullet. No, you you yeah. it, you said it's sophisticated. Literally opens in a restaurant to which uh, Judy is like stabbing Jesse, or is yeah, is yeah. it Judy? Right, yeah. She's just stabbing Jesse yeah. in the leg with a knife. 
But we finally get to see the specter who's been kind of looming over the show this season is the the image of Amy Lee yeah. Gemstone, I guess. You know, like uh, played by Jennifer Nettles. And it's uh, Billy Freeman's sister who marries Eli Gemstone. Right. And, and kind of Billy, baby Billy and, and Amy had like a singing group, but she decides to leave him to go sort of be full-time the Tammy Faye to Eli's Jim Baker. Yeah. But we do get this flashback to, I guess, the 80s. And uh, this we get this musical performance from Walton Goggins and Jennifer Nettles that has since gone, I guess, gone viral. I don't, yeah, I don't even a, know if that's appropriate. It's definitely in the culture now. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things that a show kind of waits for it to happen because I think as this thing gets more and more uh, spread, people are going to be like, well, what's, so what's the deal with Righteous Gemstones? And it's this performance of a song called Misbehaving, <laughs> which is, I guess, supposed to be Amy Lee and um, Baby Billy's classic, like their smash yeah. hit. And they announce on Amy Lee and Eli's show that they're going to go back out on tour and do a performance of Misbehaving, which involves a clog dance <laughs> and... Lyrics such as running through the house with a pickle in my mouth. <laughs> as somebody who obviously likes country music and somebody who obviously is familiar with megachurches and Jennifer Nettles, who yeah. you know, obviously, if people don't know, is in, is in Sugarland yeah. and is a huge country star. What did you think of this scene? I was, oh my God. I, I was looking at, I had like so much joy inside of me. Um, wasn't even like really take, the first time, I wasn't really taking the lyrics in. I was just kind of like, just laughing at the spectacle of Walton Goggins, like Jennifer Nettles. I told you that I told you like there was she was born for this part. She basically played late '80s Jennifer Nettles. When she performs in real life, she's super corny. She over sort of overacts a little bit, um, and so she, her doing this was. But seeing Walton Goggins basically just earnestly performing this song and then the fact that they they played the whole thing through there's a moment where it cuts to the audience and it seems like the song's gonna end and then they just like bring it back with another verse and it's like a, yeah. a good solid three three and a half minute performance I was just blown away but then you dive into the <laughs> then you dive into the lyrics about these kids that are that are you know I guess acting acting out or whatever and, and Jesus is the answer but some of the things they're doing are like playing with the stick <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just oh my god leaving a pie on the window yeah <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. so good and for I love it because it, it is genuinely catchy like you you sit there and you sort of you you know, whenever somebody's like, "Yeah, they're huge, they're a huge band," in like a show, you're just sort of like, "Well, it better be good." Like I remember, I remember watching like La La Land, and John Legend's band was like the one that was sweeping the nation, and I was like, "The nation would literally never listen to this." It feels like this yeah. one. It's like it seems like the the in that, especially in that time period, it definitely seems like a song that would have taken off. And I was reading like some of the like there was like a mini oral history published somewhere. Um, I can't remember. On Fast Company. Okay, yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, McBride was talking about how like a lot of the people on set thought it was a real song, thought it had existed. And that's like... Yeah, they were looking on iTunes to see if they could buy right. it. Right. And that's like such a good telling thing, especially for a show that's sort of centering, not centering, but like has this storyline about um, this musical 
you know, brother sister duo. Um, but oh my god, just somebody hit me up on Twitter and was like, "Was this the best TV moment since Teddy Perkins?" And I, you know, that that's debatable, yeah. but it was this show's Teddy Perkins moment. for sure. It was the show's like, "Holy shit, did you see that last night?" Moment. So. I only hope we get more nettles. I hope there's more nettles in our future. Yeah, and and obviously, I hope Goggins just re- he. It's for me, like personally, he took a leap. Like in my personal, like I already loved his? him, but this episode was just like his conversation with Young McBride. That performance, it was just crazy. When he first gets introduced on the the actual televangelist broadcast yeah. in the '80s, and he's been such a shit bag. He's basically dressed like a fucking broke down Don Johnson (laughs) and drinking beer and like scandalizing people. And then he goes on the Gemstone show and they introduce him. It's like, oh, and it's baby Billy Freeman. And he's like, it's just silly baby Billy. (laughs) And it's like, he just turns on this crazy level of charm and and like superficial showmanship. It's such good acting though. Yeah. It's really, really great. They did their research, Um, man. It's it's crazy. And like even Nettles is like, massive sweater that she wears during it that's like colorful it's like that's exactly what it was like because she had to sort of dress like she had that sort of like preacher's wife but performer thing down it was it was just great i don't know yeah all right well thank you for joining me to talk about all things country and god uh and god and country gallagher i appreciate it uh we'll wrap it up there i'll be back monday uh, we'll do some Emmys stuff. We'll do, obviously, some Emmys wrap-up. If you want my predictions, my predictions are... Essentially, I think this is going to be Game of Thrones' Return of the King run, where even though... I, I guess you could make the argument that Return of the King is the best Lord of the Rings movie. I, I wouldn't, but I think it's going to win a, as like a victory lap. So regardless of how people felt about the last season of Game of Thrones, I think it's going to clean up. That being said... And I know that you're gonna think that I'm I'm just betting on the horse that got me here. Yeah. I kind of watch out for Ozark. Oh my gosh, because they've been pushing Ozark like the campaign. The brand is strong, and the campaign they've been like Elizabeth Warren in Iowa with this thing. So there's a lot of Ozark buzz. I wouldn't be shocked if that was the surprise one. I don't think it's gonna be Killing Eve. I don't think Succession yet. I think Succession is years next they year. They don't have an acting nomination, um, which is which is pretty wild. So yeah, I would think Yeah, so. I think next season, once everybody is kind of caught up, Succession becomes one of those awards horses. As far as limited series, I just feel like Chernobyl is a mortal lock. But I, I, we'll see. Yeah. It'll be really interesting. It should be an interesting Emmys. We'll have a wrap-up of the Emmys. We'll have a wrap-up of Succession episode, I guess it's seven, right? Yeah, yes. Seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven. So we'll do seven on Monday with me and Jason. So until then, thank you, Gallagher, for joining me. Thank you, Donnie, for joining me. Thank you to Kaya. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by The Righteous Gemstones. Don't miss The Righteous Gemstones Sunday nights on HBO. From the team behind Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals comes the story of a popular megachurch slash money-making enterprise. Starring Danny McBride as a bad boy preacher, Jesse Gemstone, John Goodman as the family patriarch, Eli, and Adam Devine and Edie Patterson as the younger Gemstone siblings. The Righteous Gemstones airs Sundays at 10 p.m. only on HBO.